In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Glory be to Jesus Christ. It's a great joy to be in God's house this morning, to enjoy each other's fellowship and to worship the true God in spirit and in truth. This is the 47th sermon in this series on the epistle readings appointed for this for these Sundays. I've been picking blackberries this week on our farm, wild blackberries. And I guess you could say it has been kind of a bittersweet experience. Wild blackberries grow in very thick and extremely thorny patches. You can sometimes reach in and you can't get back out without a lot of pain. Picking wild, wild blackberries is similar to reading the Holy Scripture. Berries are like nuggets of truth and wisdom. And sometimes they are self-evident. You just see them right there in front of you, hanging, hanging like low-hanging low fruit. Other times you have to really work for them. You have to dig in. You have to reach in real deep. And you have to stretch. You have to get things out of your way to get to them. And the Holy Scriptures are very much that way. Sometimes the meaning is very sweet, and self-evident, soothing to the soul, and other times the meaning escapes us or the meaning pricks our conscience. The words that we read convict us of our sin. Sometimes a text will just jump right out at you with, with its meaning, with the truth, and other times you have to spend much effort grappling with the words you're reading with the context in which they have been written. And as I prepared my sermon for this week, I felt like I was dealing with a very contrary wild blackberry bush. I think I've told you before that as my custom every week after the Divine Liturgy when I go home, I read the appointed text for the following Sunday and begin to develop my sermon. And all week I wrestled with this opening verse to the passage from Romans that we was read today in the epistle reading. We then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. The meaning of this is not at all clear. Who are the weak among us? Who are the strong among us? What are the scruples of the weak? And it really took me all week of wrestling with this to finally come to what I believe to be a correct orthodox understanding. And you have to really see this verse in context. In the preceding chapter and through much of Romans, Paul is dealing with the issue of food and fasting. Popular subject, right? 
food and fasting. You will, you will recall that I preached on this a few weeks ago and explained that the New, New Testament Christians had a dilemma when it came to what to eat while being part of a pagan culture. In the Council of Jerusalem, recorded in the book of Acts, the apostles judged that the new Christians coming into the church from Greek and pagan backgrounds would not be required to keep the Jewish law, but rather were directed simply to obey these specific directions. And they were very clear about it. Abstain from things polluted by idols Abstain from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. So really, of all the things they could have said, they narrowed it down to things that were specifically attached to paganism and idol worship. Food that had been offered to idols, animals that had been strangled, blood from these animals, and from sexual immorality. Very strong connection between sexual immorality and paganism. And so this is what the early church had to deal with. This, these rules about food were very early a, part, a problem for the church. In Acts chapter 15, verse 28, this admonition is repeated. <clears throat> and this time it says, For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. And it's interesting, St. Peter said at this council, he made this remarkable statement to those who were arguing that the Jewish law needed to be kept by everybody. He said, Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? Later on in the book of Acts, just a few chapters later, we see again this, this um, prescription. And it's almost repeated ver verbatim by Paul. He says, but concerning the Gentiles who believe, we have written and decided that they should observe no such thing except, and he, when he says no such, such thing, he's referring to all the stuff that Judaizers are keep on picking at. That they want them to be circumcised. They want them to wash their hands before they come into the church or whatever things that they were picking at. He said, we, we instructed them no such things except... And then he almost repeats verbatim this canon. Except that they should keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. Almost verbatim. Is this, you see how the church was already beginning to canonize its life here in the book of Acts. And just as a side, I want to say something about the Jewish law. All of the laws that God gave to Israel are included in the Pentateuch, which are the first five books of the Bible, of the Old Testament. 
Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. These books are so important to understand and read. Not that we are required to keep all these laws, but God spoke these laws for a reason. The psalmist says, The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimonies of the Lord are pure and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey in the honeycomb. The whole Bible is, is this sweet, rich, beautiful thing that we need to know, we need to take seriously. And when you read the laws, the righteousness of God flows forth from these laws. And even though some of the laws maybe today are not even relevant, don't apply to our culture or our time, they still bring out the wisdom of God. And so we should, we should read these laws and we should be aware of them. I spoke last week about tattoos and how the law spoke about tattoos. <coughs> Every facet of our lives is addressed by the law. While as Christians we are not commanded to obey all these laws, we should know what they are and should consider them to be beneficial and helpful in the journey of salvation. We should not disregard them or consider them to be irrelevant. If we did not have the new covenant, if we did not have our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, fulfill the law and being our Lord and Savior, if we did not have the New Testament, the new covenant, then there would be no greater foundation upon which to build our lives than the Old Testament law. But Christ fulfilled the law. So getting back to the question at hand, the the sticky point here, about what Paul said about the weak and the strong and the the, uh, scruples of the weak. As I explained earlier, the Christians had to purchase food in the marketplace. And it was a pagan culture. They didn't always know what what the meat specifically had been used for. Had it been offered to idols? Had it been used in pagan worship? They didn't know. And so this became a difficult point for them. It was not so cut and dry. Some people were very strict. They would not even eat meat at all, unless they knew exactly where it had come from. Or some even chose to not eat meat, you know, period. Other people didn't really care. You know, they, they just kept the commandments the best they could, and they worshiped the Lord, and they weren't upset about picky things. And so it began to be a problem in the church. St. Paul addresses this. You know, at first glance, one might think that the weak among us were those who did not fast while the strong among us us were those who kept a very strict fast. But it's actually the opposite. When Paul addresses this, it's actually the opposite. The weak were the ones who were very concerned about keeping that 
the law very strictly and, and not eating meat that had been offered to idols. Whereas the strong were those who just looked at food as food. Didn't really matter. And this is the opposite of what we would think was actually was happening in this passage. The scruples of the weak are actually an overemphasis on external things such as food and drink. That's what he's getting at. If you need to do all, everything just right, eat the right food, right, the right drinks, Come to church at the right times. Bow the right number of times. Do all those things. If you need to do all those things in order to be secure in your relationship with Christ, then that, that is a weakness. That's the kind of weakness that Paul was referring to in the weak among us. People whose faith was not very solid and they needed to be supported by a lot of external things. Whereas the strong were those who uh, were very sure of their relationship with Christ. And so they did not get upset by, by the chance of eating food in, in an appropriate way or, or other types of rules that might be broken. And St. Paul sums up the debate by expressing that the most important thing is that whatever we do, it should be done in faith and in preference to our brothers and sisters and what is good for them and not what is good for us. That is the heart of it. We should not be motivated by making sure we do everything right, but we should be motivated by, okay, what is going to be good for my brother and my sister? As they see me in the marketplace, or they see me, see me eating my food, or see me working, what is my witness going to do for them? Is it going to help them or is it going to hinder them? The law of love and the law of faith are what at work, is at work here. The mature man knows that he can eat anything, but will only eat that which is, does not offend his brother or cause his brother to stumble. So let's bring this whole thing down to a practical level, to, to our situation. Well, I had one example. Say, say you're having lunch with a friend. And you'd kind of like to have a soft drink with your sandwich. Full of high fructose corn syrup. But you know that your friend who you're having lunch with, he has an addiction for sugar. It really messes with his mind. It leads him into all kind of trouble. And this, this does happen, by the way. And it's not healthy for him. So in preference for your friend, you would only drink water so that you not, do not cause him to stumble. That's probably not a very good example because really probably none of us should be drinking high fructose corn syrup at all. But anyway, it's an example of how we, we look at how our actions are going to affect someone else. And as Orthodox Christians, we have entered into a voluntary covenantal relationship with Christ and with each other, and we have agreed... When we became Orthodox, we agreed to keep a prescribed fast, to live a life of prayer, to live a life of almsgiving, and to be devoted by Holy Script, by, to Holy Scripture. So we have we've agreed to a common lifestyle. But in the context of this lifestyle, we are not to judge one another. We're not to even notice. 
how strict someone else is keeping these rules, how well they are fasting. And we keep these practices in a way that does not judge or injure our brother. And St. Paul, in this whole argument, pleads with the Romans and pleads with us, do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. Do not destroy with food the one for whom Christ died. And later, do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. And they were really looking at possibly splitting the church over this issue. And if you look at the history of the church, the church could have split so many times over many different issues. But they hung on to their unity through very difficult circumstances, even things that that we would look at and say, boy, that's a deal breaker right there, like the filioque or uh, unleavened Eucharist or a celibate priesthood. These things that have begun to emerge between the Western and the Eastern Church long before the Great Schism. But they did not split over these things. They hung on to their unity because they did not want to destroy the work of God, which was the unity of the church, because of these things, these somewhat external things. I'm not saying the filioque is external, but it's still, it was not the reason they split. Finally, the reason they split was all about power and pride and who was going to be in charge. That was it. Power, pride, who's going to be in charge? And the Pope of Rome excommunicated the Eastern Orthodox Church, and the Eastern Orthodox Church reciprocated, and and they've never been back together again in the Holy Eucharist. Over not over the filioque, not over the celibate priesthood, not over what kind of Eucharist bread we're going to use. Over who's in charge. Those of you who, who have been maybe involved in a divorce or know people who've been divorced, you know the tragedy of, of, the, of the breaking of that covenant. And so often it's, it's over basically who's going to be in charge. It's not, a, it's not about a lot of the little things. The little things kind of chip away at it, but ultimately there's, there's not a yielding of the will to each other, becoming one will. One will, one nature, where no matter how miserable that other person is to live with, you're going to stick there with them. Jesus Christ said he, he did not condone divorce except for one thing, sexual immorality. Just like the New Testament the, in the book of Acts, sexual immorality. That was the only thing that Christ condoned divorce for. Any type of relationship is hard to keep. It takes a lot of forbearance, even in the church. In the Protestant churches, they split over and over and over. And many of them, probably local churches, might have split over the color of the carpet. Or the building of a church building or various things like that. It always comes down to love. 
The law of love is what we need to follow. And so we need to bear with one another, not judge one another. If you think someone's not being <clears throat> strict enough about fasting or whatever, prayer or whatever, just it's really not something to be concerned about. You know, I always think of the, the story of the monk, and you've probably heard this story. There was a very lazy monk, and he liked to drink too much. And he didn't say his prayers very much, didn't fast very good. Finally, he came to the end of his life, and the brothers were all gathered around, and he knew that his time was coming, and he was full of joy. His, his face was shining with light, and he was ready to go into heaven. And the brothers gathered around and said, aren't you afraid? Aren't you worried? I mean, you, you've been a horrible monk. <laughs> you've been a lousy monk. And he looked at them and said, yes, that is true, but my whole life I never judged anyone. And he could see the angels coming to receive him into the kingdom of God. Now, I want to qualify this because when you, when you, you hear this a lot, you know, people shouldn't judge. Well, there are some things that we knew, do need to judge. I'm just talking about the external things that we, that we don't want to get bogged down in. But we do need to judge certain things. This week, I heard about another evangelical leader, uh, actually an author of children's, Christian children's books, who decided he's a homosexual. And he said that he's a husband and father of three children. And he said that coming out to his children was one of the most difficult and beautiful things he had ever done. Lord have mercy. How could he say that? And I don't know what church this man goes to or if he, even if he does have a local church, probably does. The leaders of that church need to grab him by the collar, lead him to the front doors of the church and lovingly put him out on the street. Tell him not to return until he's ready to repent. There are some things that need to be judged, and we only judge those within the church. But when other people are calling themselves Christians, claiming to be part of Christendom, we do have to judge. St. Paul said about the man in the Corinthian church who was living with his father's wife, turn him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. In other words, it is out of love for the soul of that person that they need to be cast out of the fellowship so that they can repent. These are not the kind of scruples that Paul is referring to in this passage from Romans today. My children in Christ, the Orthodox Church is the last bastion of true Christian morality. We must prepare for the onslaught that is coming. We need to speak the truth in love. The Black Lives Matter movement is from hell. There's nothing good about it. Of course black lives matter. All lives matter. Unborn lives matter. But the movement itself, the organization, you go to their website, they put it right out there in front to read. They want to disrupt 
the nuclear family and replace the patriarchal system. Again, it's all about power. Who's going to be in charge? Organized by two lesbian African-American women. We need to speak the truth about this. And I wish that pastors and especially Orthodox priests all over the country would stand up and preach the truth about this because people are very confused. People are very confused. They don't know what to think about it. I mentioned a couple weeks ago, a Catholic priest in Carmel, Indiana, spoke very clearly about this to his congregation and he was removed from his position by the bishop by the local Catholic bishop. This is hypocrisy. This is not true Christianity. If we do not hold the line on same-sex marriage, on cohabitation, on transgenderism, and communism, Marxism, socialism, and all of these other abominations, then we will become totally irrelevant as a church and unhelpful to the world. We will be like salt that has lost its flavor and whose only purpose is to be trod into the ground. The law of love demands that we not judge in, regard, in regards to external things, but we must judge in essential things. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, glory be to Jesus Christ. Glory forever.